0: Welcome to the Light Pod brought to you by LightEye. the hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting and lighting beyond. I'm your host Sam Corbel. and today I'm super excited to be virtually joined by Jim Tetlow, the president and founder of Nautilus Entertainment and Design in San Diego. You may have not heard of Jim before or his company, but you've certainly seen his work lately in the recent presidential debates. Jim, welcome to the podcast. How's it going in
1: sunny San Diego? Beautiful, beautiful here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention you and I are sitting here recording this on election day. And we happened to come across each other when I made a little bit of a video that commented on how absolutely beautiful the lighting was at that first presidential debate this year, because let's be honest, that was about all I could focus on. And what's fun is by the time this is released, the inaugural moment will be just around the corner. So thanks for setting us up to talk about something cool in lighting in quite a presidential time period, if I may say so myself. Talk to me just a little bit about who's Jim and how you got your start in lighting.
1: Well, I graduated in the late 70s from Carnegie Mellon with a degree in technical theater. I was really focused on lighting But in those days, they didn't have a separate lighting track. It was all technical theater. So even though I was focusing on lighting, I worked in audio, I worked as a carpenter, as a flyman, all the different technical areas of theater, which ultimately served me very well in the other areas of our business beyond lighting. I knew that while I was in school that I didn't want to go into theater, but I had a real interest in television. I was in love with the technology of television. I like the challenge of making things look good on camera, which in the 1970s was a lot harder to do because of the video technology at the time. I was going to say, let's pause for a second. Let's talk
0: about what was going on in terms of technology in 1970. I know
1: HD wasn't a thing. Were computers even around? No. No. <laughs> actually, having gone to Carnegie Mellon, which is very computer-centric, There was an IBM 360 mainframe, and there were digital PDP-11s, PDP-8s, and those things on campus. But the personal computer hadn't been invented yet. I don't think that was invented until 81, 82. So there's no
0: personal computers. You're going to school at Carnegie Mellon trying to figure out lighting and television. What was super exciting about that challenge, as you mentioned,
1: in television itself, in production? It was the technology. There was a local studio a production company that I started to work in. They had three studio cameras and a couple handheld cameras and the studio monitor and you'd go into the control room. This is all analog 1970s technology and it'd take a long time to set up the cameras. And I used to love to hang out with the video guy while he was setting them up, registering them and balancing the colors and the black levels and the white levels and everything else, all of which is automated now. But at that point, it was done manually. I just love the lighting scenes in the studio that you'd see on the monitor and learning how to light them to look the way you want them to look rather than the way it looks to the eye.
0: When you talk about lighting something to get it to look the way you want it to look, walk me through how you got there. Was that your own creative definition of how it should look? Or did somebody give you a sheet that says, this is what it has to look like?
1: In most of the cases in those days, because I was really young and starting out, I watched what the other lighting designers did, and I emulated that. But then I began to modify it in ways that I thought worked better. And sometimes they did, sometimes it didn't. We were doing a lot of commercials, so there was always some input from the agencies. It didn't really start with them saying, we want you to light it to look like this. It'd be more like I'd start lighting, let's say, a kitchen set. We're doing some a commercial for some food product in a kitchen and I'd start lighting it and you'd get some comments from the agency about, oh, we like the light coming streaming through the window or could you give us more of this? These were all people a lot more experienced for me. So of course there was input, but nobody handed me a sheet of paper and said kitchen 8am sunlight streaming through the window, halo of backlight on the model or, or anything like that. It was more get into it and then they'd respond with comments
0: you always had the opportunity have creative freedom almost right off the bat. What do you think inspired you to just keep going into this space? And talk to me, how about that I ended up transforming into your company today and all the other things that it does?
1: After graduating from Carnegie Mellon, I bounced around a number of places, and I was not doing as much television lighting as I wanted to. I was doing photography on the side and whatever I could pick up. This was 1981, and it was the year that cable television took off. I was working in L.A. freelance for a company that also had a New York office. The center of the cable television business was actually in New York, and they were really busy in New York. They had a show they needed to be covered. They asked me if I could go to New York and do that show. And while I was doing that show, they had other work come up, so they asked me to do another show and then another project and another one. Finally, they said, look, we're paying you too much freelance. We want you to come on staff with us here in New York. So I did. And the name of that company was Emero Fiorentino Associates, no longer around, but it was very big in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It had a large contingent of television lighting designers, but they also did architectural lighting and they did facility design, primarily television studio facility design but also some other theaters and other entertainment venues. While I was there, I wasn't involved in this, but they did the original exterior architectural lighting for Epcot when it opened. And that was a very big project. We're talking about Epcot down in Florida. Yes. Disney World, right? Yes. Massive project. All of the exterior lighting, decorative and functional. Although I wasn't working on it, the people working on it, that team was 5, 10 feet away from me. So I saw a lot of what was going on. That was really fascinating. In the 10 years that I was with them in New York, the majority of my work was in television. Some of it was for corporate presentations. Some of it was for, gee, I don't know if you could even call it architecture in those days, but doing a layout for lighting the rapids leading to Niagara Falls. Okay. So I guess it's an exterior architectural, but it was really just l- lighting the water. Which is no small task. Right. It was a great exposure to all of those different elements of lighting and entertainment design. So I'm curious, when you look at lighting design, fundamentally, it's the
0: practice of taking light and putting it into a space to create a mood, affect people, or make them comfortable, or convey something. I have to assume that whether or not we're in a television studio or an architectural facility. Or, as you mentioned, maybe Niagara Falls, the underlying theme of what lighting design is as a practice remains constant. Talk to me a little bit about what's different in designing for television and production compared to architectural lighting design.
1: First of all, let me reinforce basically what you said, because I feel really strongly that as long as you really understand lighting and how light works and what photons do, then you can work in any of these different areas. But what's different about them is, of course, the techniques, the equipment that we use in each one of them. For example, if you go into an existing television studio, most of them have their own lights. And so you pick and choose the lights that they have there, or maybe you bring in a small supplemental package. If you're shooting on a film stage, they usually are completely empty when you walk in, and you need to bring the rigging all the lights, rent them, all that. So if you go into a studio where most of the gear is there, which is what I was doing through the 1980s, you would then select the equipment that was there for the specific purpose. You didn't have to specify something. It was there. You just picked the best size Fresnel for that project or that application. Certainly in architectural, you're starting from scratch. And you have to figure out not only your fixture location, and placement, spacing, and all that, but also run the photometrics and specify the fixtures. So when you look at lighting a television studio versus an architectural environment,
0: while the concept is the same, there's a certain degree of freedom that comes with a blank canvas. But then again, when there's a predetermined use for the space, there's almost a known quantity of luminaires, how much light you need in the space, you still had to kind of tweak things and set the levels and make sure that each subject was properly lit. And the way you light a subject for a static environment that has to be broadcast, I want to tend to think might require a few more specific lights in specific places as compared to general architectural illumination.
1: I think one of the differences between working in television and architecture is working in television, you really have to think on your feet. Let's say you're doing a soap opera. You go in in the morning and you have to light seven, eight, nine different sets. And a scenic designer will leave you the scenic plans with notes about daytime or nighttime or something that he's received in a production meeting. Using the existing lighting in the studio, you have to light them for that time of day or that mood to be ready to go on camera at nine o'clock in the morning. How big is this
0: space? Are those eight sets within the same room and they're, yes. and they're moving it throughout the day?
1: Yes. Let's say the studio is 80 by 100 feet. These sets might be four on one side of the studio, four on the other, and an alley down the center for the cameras to work. Yep. And you go from set to set to set. So one of them might be a restaurant. One might be a living room. One might be a kitchen. Another one might be a bedroom. One might be an exterior set. You come in at four, five, six in the morning. Working with this stage manager there, you need to light all these sets to be ready to go on camera. So it doesn't mean everything's perfect at 9 o'clock. It means you've got them lit well enough to start blocking the cameras. And then all through the morning, you do focus touch-ups, you record different presets, different intensities. After lunch, there'll be a dress rehearsal, and then uh, you'll record that day. And that's the end of it. That'll happen in just one day. If you're doing a sitcom, that process is probably stretched out over a week because they do more rehearsal. You have more time to light each set. But if you're doing a talk show, it's usually a one-day wonder, which is what we call them. You come in, you light it, you rehearse it, you shoot it, you're done. I don't need to tell you how that differs from architectural lighting where- Wait, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? (laughs) Hold on a second. You don't
0: get six months to review everything. You don't submit, cross-check. VE everything out. Wow, this is a pretty different
1: world. It is a different world, even though the the photons are doing the same thing. (laughs) I'm just curious,
0: if we dive in just a little bit more and talk about equipment being available and having to work with what's there, is that a part of the lighting design process even prior to... Coming into aiming that set for the day is figuring out the general requirements for what that studio space will serve and making sure that the right equipment is available. Who figures that out?
1: Well, most of the New York studios had a complement of equipment that would be sufficient to do what you needed to do in there for, for those sorts of productions. If you needed something special, you could probably rent it for a day or two. But that was such a rare situation. And you learned how to use the lights that were there to do what you needed them to do. It's different with theatrical productions because you do a light plot, you come up with an equipment list, and you rent it. But what is constant between that and television is, for the most part, you're limited to what's available in rental stock. So it's not as if you, you can thumb through the latest trade magazine and get any light you want. You know, you're limited by budget and you're limited what's in rental stock. I think architectural is different because you pick what you want for the application. And of course, then it gets VE'd out. But (laughs) at least you're starting with what you think is ideal for the application.
0: So when we look past the equipment, the process of lighting design and what light has the ability to do is definitely the similarity, but it kind of stops there in terms of what you're doing, how it comes to practice is quite different. And as you mentioned, challenging and makes you think on your feet. I tell you what, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about lighting the biggest stage there has been in 2020, those presidential debates. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Great. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, the LightPod is brought to you by Lyte, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to all things lighting. Check them out at lytei.com. Welcome, 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 welcome back. Over the break, Jim and I were just talking a little bit more about what it's been like to be in 2020. All things aside from the pandemic to the presidential election, he's had to focus on something that his company's gotten the opportunity to do multiple times, but it only comes around once every four years, which is making those candidates, those presidents on the biggest stage look good while they keep their comments to two minutes, or maybe not so much. Jim, the floor is yours. You can talk as much as you want. We're not debating here. We want to know what's it like to light the biggest stage in 2020, the presidential debate?
1: Well, it was a month of high anxiety. <laughs> that's it. Wow, that's it. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think that captures it. The debates are always uh, fairly high anxiety because, of course, the two campaigns are, are looking for any advantage they can get. And they're very concerned about how their candidate looks. Not that any of them are experts in lighting, but... But they're experts in fashion and picking out suits and ties. Ah, there you go, yes, that's right. There's always a lot of pressure there, but of course, this year we had the additional anxiety of traveling around to four different locations, starting in March with surveys. We did our first survey week before the lockdown. Even during the lockdown, we were sneaking out to do other surveys, and then we spent a month on the road producing what we thought were going to be four debates, but turned out to only be three.
0: And when you had those opportunities to go scout, what are you looking at when you're surveying the sites? Is somebody telling you this is what you get, or do you get the opportunity to make recommendations about how they build this whole stage? Because after all, if people aren't well lit, they're not going to see anything.
1: It's basically this is what you get in terms of a venue. But the scenic designer and I have been working together for just shy of 40 years. So we determine conjunction with the rigor, where the set will be located in the space. I have a good idea of what the set is, it's going to be close to what it was last time. There'll be some decorative changes, but in terms of the, the layout, it's going to be about the same. In terms of the candidate placement, the moderator placement, relationships to the back walls, the side walls and all that, I know what it's going to be. So we sit in that space and the scenic designer will open up CAD files of the architecture and then start placing the set into it. At the same time, we're looking at the available rigging points where we can hang lights, and we shift the stage around so that it works for the audience capacity and the lighting angles and all those different elements. And we, we need to make sure there's sufficient backstage area for all the dimmers and the lighting control and the audio department and all the, the dressing rooms and the holding rooms and all that.
0: You just brought up probably 30 different things that go into what's a visual of basically a side-by-side cut of one candidate next to the other on televisions across the country. So let's focus just a little bit on those those two presidential candidates for a second. Talk to me about lighting them. Is there six lights on them? Is there 10 lights on them or have you perfected this with one magic
1: light? <laughs> I don't know which candidate is going to be on which side of the stage until one or two days before. So I come up with a generic lighting focus plot that will work for anybody and I basically surround them with light. I start with a center key light over their primary camera, straight up over the lens. I'll have two 45 degree fill lights. I'll have a cross light from either side and then I have three backlights. And it doesn't mean that I use all of these lights all the time, but I have them available for me so I can balance the look of the candidate all the way around. For example, with the two candidates we had this year, I had the three backlights. They're both tall. So the outside cross backlights, I focused for their hair, for the shoulders, the hair, all that. And I ran them at a very low level. The center backlight, I focused on their shoulders but cut it off of their hair so I could ride that one higher so there'd be more separation that the shoulders were lit more than the hair which gave a separation from the set without blowing out their light-colored hair.
0: And let's talk a little bit about how you create that separation from the set. Cameras have the ability to focus and create a depth of field. Some people know it as buka de peon what your familiarity with cameras is, but why is light a critical part of helping create that separation?
1: With what you're referring to, it all comes down to exposure. I lit all of this at around 60 foot candles, which I'm comfortable doing. If you get down to 20 foot candles, any small change, you're off by a stop. And so I'm comfortable lighting around 50 or 60. I usually target 50, but it inches up to 60 with reflections. So I just balance everything to get that level. In this case, this gave us about an F3.5 on all the cameras, which is a moderate depth of field. The cameramen need to be able to focus. If we were shooting a film and you could do multiple takes, I wouldn't be afraid to shoot wide open and shoot down to 10, 15-foot candles. But this is live, we've got eight, nine cameras, they have to hit focus, and so I'm comfortable around F3.5 and F4.
0: And let's just talk a little bit about f3.5 and f4 for people that might not be super familiar with.
1: Oh, okay. It's the aperture of the lens that is set for the exposure. Based on the amount of light, you adjust your aperture to have the ideal exposure. A typical lens wide open might be 1.7, 1.8. And that has a very shallow depth of field, especially when you're working on a telephoto lens. And the cameras are, let's say, 50 feet away from the candidates. So that's quite far away. If we were wide open, it'd be very shallow depth of field, meaning the background would be out of focus, if the candidate's in focus, and it'd be quite difficult for the camera operators to maintain a good focus. We'll use your example of 50 feet wide open.
0: Is that a depth of field of inches or feet
1: at that point? It depends completely on the lens and the size of your sensor, but I would say it'd probably be less than six inches. It'd be three inches, probably. So.
0: Just to paint a picture here real quick, to focus three inches, no human head is three inches deep, so to speak. A human body is what, maybe 12, 18 inches deep. So you need a depth of field that would ideally be able to put that person in focus. Keeping in mind that we're not robotic, we're not going to send steel, we're going to move right, left, back and forth. You've got to be able to close down that aperture a little bit. And that's why you need so much more light in the space. Instead of 15-foot candles, you're putting 60-foot candles. I'm not going to lie. I'm surprised there isn't more light on them. 60-foot candles is probably a pretty comfortable lit environment in real time for them to stand there and debate whatever topic. Let's flip over to the moderator because I think that's my favorite subject in a debate. They look like they're sitting in
1: outer space. How do you do that? That's because the audience can't be lit because it's a distraction. We don't want to see the audience at all. Also, the moderator has a dark blue panel behind them, which makes the job a little bit easier. This is an interesting topic because when I started lighting these and I'd look at the reverse shot, which is the moderator shot, it was just them there in space like you said. I said, okay, let me start thinking about this. Maybe I ought to be really isolating the candidates also. And so, yes, there's 60-foot candles at the lecterns where the candidates are. But if you take two steps to the right or two steps to the left, it's down to five 10-foot candles. There's just nothing there. Because I've made a conscious decision to very selectively light the candidates, the moderator, and then the background independently.
0: Not going to lie, Jim, I'm kind of a lighting nerd. And I noticed when I was watching the debate, the stars and stripes were perfectly lit. But that carpet in between the two, or three of them, I should say, candidates and the moderator, as you mentioned, was kind of dark. So tell us a little bit more about what it's like to light the set outside of the subjects.
1: Well, it's a dark blue carpet, custom-made carpet, with that band, double line with stars, semicircle around the candidates. I made a conscious decision to not light the floor, but to light that band of the carpet with the stars which I did with 650-watt Fresnels. I think probably seven or eight of them just spaced around directly over the ring and downlit that. Then there was a no-man's land between the moderator and the two candidates. And I learned this maybe two debates ago. So I hung another Fresnel there and spotted it down just to have a round glow on the floor Mm -hmm. between all of them. And then the set had a lot of internal LED lighting, which helps a lot. The stars in the header were translucent so they were backlit by the same LEDs that was cove lighting up and down from the band. So I thought that was great. That was all built in internal. That took care of a big portion of the background. Absolutely. Then I had seven or eight cyclorama lights around the radius of the sat about six feet out and I would just run those at a glow, maybe 40% to light up the eagle. The one at the center on the eagle was a slightly lower intensity. Because of some shadowing on the set. But the rest of them were maybe 40%. I think the eagle was probably 30, 25%. And it was just enough to glow all that. The backgrounds with the text of the Constitution behind each candidate are backlit with both warm and cool LEDs. I opted for the warm 3,000 Kelvin LEDs in those panels, but I used the daylight LEDs in the header because I like the cleanliness of the white up there, but the warmth behind the candidates.
0: When you look at how all of this comes together, I tried to count as you were naming everything off, but I definitely lost track. It sounds to me like there's upwards of probably 60 luminaires that are focused down on the stage here.
1: One other aspect of the candidate lighting is for each one of the front lights, the fill lights and the cross lights, I double hang it so that I have a redundant light there in the case of a burnout. Because uh, you can't get to the lights. You can't stop the debate <laughs> to go change the light bulb, right? So, <laughs> Are you using halogen or are you using LED? We're still using halogen on this. There's a number of reasons for that. Some of it, we touched on earlier, is the available inventory in rental stock. There's a tremendous available inventory of halogen theatrical fixtures in rental stock. So it's a common sense thing. There's far more available halogen stock than LED. Also I like the full color spectrum of halogen, how it reads on camera, how flesh tones render on camera. That's not to say there aren't some good LED sources out there, but not in the specific luminaires and in the volume that I use. I'm going to guess there's close to a hundred fixtures that we hang for that. I would say maybe 20% of them are not on. They're there as spares and backups. But these are fixtures that cost $15 a week to rent usually. So it's a worthwhile investment to have the backup there. And does this rig travel
0: with each debate? Yeah. Yeah. So you guys, you build one rig and you position it, as you mentioned earlier, with the scenic designer for each space.
1: Yeah. And the spaces varied a lot this time. For example, our first location was in this glass atrium at the Cleveland Clinic. Glass atrium, as in it was sunny all day long and I couldn't really <laughs> do anything till after dark. In addition to that, there were no rigging points, so we had to build a completely ground-supported rigging system. Based on where we wanted to put the legs for the front of house lighting positions and taking into consideration seating and everything else, the key light position was approximately 70 feet away from the candidates. Wow. What kind of beam angle do you throw out of a light that's 70 feet away? A 10 degree ETC source for ellipsoidal. Nice. And of course, then the fill lights were probably 50 to 60 feet away. Usually, I'm able to key light the candidates with a 14 degree, but we were just too far away in that location. And then the vice presidential debate We're in the University of Utah theater, and again, we were 60-some feet away just because of the theater architecture of where we could hang lights. So once again, I used 10 degrees for the keys, and then by the time we got to the last location in Nashville, we were in a gymnasium, and I could move things in closer and get away with a 14-degree.
0: Jim, I think I know where all those early-on years of having to think on your feet came in handy and why you've been doing this for 40 years. Do you suspect that this will be a a tradition for your firm moving forward? I mean, you got the job once and it only comes every four years, but they keep calling you back. Something tells me you're doing a pretty good job.
1: Well, they seem to be happy. (laughs) As long as lighting isn't the problem, you're usually asked back in, in these sorts of things. I think that's great that you get to be a
0: part of what sounds like a team event, a team that's done this for a while and is very much
1: tried, true, and trusted.
0: It's the presidential debate. I've got to ask, do you have security clearance? How do they handle all of that sort of stuff?
1: You need to submit name, birthday, social security number, all that. The Secret Service does a background check. We're issued credentials indicating that we're with the commission. Okay. Security's tight. It's just another aspect that you have to deal with. The day before the debate, we need to be out of there by 10 p.m. so the Secret Service can do a sweep. And then the venue's available again, let's say, four or five in the morning. And then you have to go through all the magnetometers and put everything to the x-ray machines and all that coming in for the day of the debate.
0: Do you ever get the chance to stand on stage and take a picture as a candidate before it all starts?
1: No cameras are allowed in the room, in the debate hall when the candidates are there okay. for their rehearsal. I spend lots of time on the debate stage, including when the candidates are there, I will say that Obama insisted on having his picture taken with all the crew members in 2012. That's so cool.
0: Yeah. Barack Obama always trying to give a tip of the hat back to everybody that
1: helped him get to where
0: he got, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> Do you ever stand there for a second and say, this is what it feels like to be president of the United States?
1: No, I stand there and say, okay, is this lighting comfortable? <laughs> and can I see the moderator? And, you know, I, I it's- yeah." <laughs>
0: because it is all about the lighting.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Jim, this has been an awesome conversation. I feel like I could talk about beam angles and key lights for another 30 minutes because I really do geek out on this stuff. Not to mention, you've got me talking about f-stops too. It's, it's everything I'm passionate about all in one, and I'm sure so many others. Is there anything you know as a closing thought you could share with us about your experiences and what it's been like to be a part of this journey?
1: I would say that you really don't know where your career is going to take you when you get out of school or you start off your career. You may think it's going to go in one direction, but really the best thing to do is just follow where it leads you. I thought I was going to have a career in television, my whole career in television, and I really wanted to do musical variety. However, by the time I was at a point in my career where I I could do that work, they'd stopped producing musical variety shows. So I didn't really want to do sitcoms and talk shows and game shows and all that for the rest of my career. And I managed to pick up a Vegas show. So that was really cool. I thought I'd do more Vegas shows, but right after that, Cirque du Soleil came in. But instead, some people saw that Vegas show. And I ended up doing 20 years of a variety show in Branson, Missouri. And I started doing shows on cruise ships. Doing the shows on cruise ships led to the theater consulting on the cruise ships. Then I started to build a company. And then we moved that to land based theater consulting. And we had some opportunities to do AV in hospitality projects, Indian reservation casinos. And the architect said, hey, do you guys do lighting too? So then we started lighting hospitality on land. And then we took that back to cruise ships. Finally, we went into theme parks with lighting design and AV system design and project management and and all those different aspects. So it's not what I ever expected to do or expect my career to go, but that's where it went and I followed it. So I think that's the thing. Don't think that whatever you're doing now is what you're going to be doing in another 20 years.
0: Well, one thing's for sure, the president only gets eight years max. They know that, but as lighting designers, maybe we can take a tip of the hat from you and your playbook of following your passion of light and letting it guide you. What's the best way people can get in touch with you if they have any more questions or want to chat more?
1: I would say my email address would be the best way. J-I-M-T-E-T-L-O-W, Jim Tetlow, one word, at N-E-D.com. So that's NED, like Nautilus Entertainment, designed with hyphens in between, because NED was taken already. You know, grabbing a three-letter domain
0: isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do unless you got like a million dollars sitting around in cash these days. Those are hard to come by. Jim, thanks so much for all your time. It's great to catch up with you. It's great to learn a little bit more about what it's like to light one of the most important stages in 2020 happy election day. It's 3 p.m. my time, 2 p.m. your time. We'll probably know a little bit more by this time tomorrow, but we'll certainly know what the answer is by the time this podcast airs. And it'll be an amazing way to give people insight into some of the more historic moments that we've been through in the last 12 months.
1: Thank you. Happy election day. Happy election day.
0: We'll talk to you soon. See you. Bye. Hey, it's Sam real quick. If you enjoyed this podcast, do me a quick favor and go back to whatever platform you listen to this on and click like, or subscribe. It's the best way to make sure that you never miss another episode of the light pod where we interview people who are all things lighting, think it's cool and have a conversation or a story to share until next time. Cheers.